if you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. Today on Horse Chats, we've got Anna Twinney back. Now, Anna came on, you know, episode 445. She started to find out a little bit more about Anna. Please go to 445. Um, Anna's very much about creating harmony for horses and humans, which is absolutely along our lines of, you know, horse welfare and safety. And we'll chat a bit more about that. But just before I do, I want to remind you about International Horse College. So at International Horse College, we have a mission to improve the welfare of horses around the world through the safe education of riders, handlers and trainers. Have a look at the wide variety of equine courses or horse courses at internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Anna, welcome. How are you? I am great. I'm in the mid-swing of our touring season, and despite the fact that we have the new farm here in North Carolina and we've opened up for retirement, we've opened up to be able to bring in other clinicians as well. So in, in effect, we've started this whole new venture and this whole new business, and at the same time, we're keeping everything going that we always have. And I used to do about 50 events a year, and that would include little radio shows and interviews, as well as like a three-hour event all the way through to a month's course. Well, I dropped a number of them to focus on week-long courses. That's my primary piece. And so I traveled out, and it's, it's really interesting because I took my truck out, and in England, and I don't know how Australia and New Zealand perceive this, but in England, a long trip is a two-hour trip, you know, three hours, and people will do it once a year. Well, here... I traveled 33 hours to get to my appointment, which was Bitterroot Ranch, and it's where I hold the Healing Horses course once a year. So I traveled over three days because by the time you put some stops in there. And then I went from the Healing Horses Clinic, which was incredible this year. We, or I personally, traveled to North Dakota. So that was another two-day trip up to North Dakota to support the Nakoda horses. And I'm all about welfare. I've been doing welfare for over 30 years. And so it's about the preservation and conservation of the Nakoda horses. And I'm the clinician that that supports them in gentling the wild ones. So I did that for a week. And then I traveled back to Wyoming, which is a day's drive to the Paha Spanish Mustangs, the Paha Pony Spanish Mustangs, and that's the Spanish Mustangs, and that's also to promote them in the conservation of them and to bring the natural techniques forward. So a lot of what I do is to team up with rescues and sanctuaries and conservationists and so on and so forth to bring a voice to the voiceless is, is one of the captions that I have. Perfect, perfect. And I love that you're, you know, you're so concerned about horse welfare, but also safety. I think we're going to talk today about safety because it's all right to say, yeah, well, you know, harmony for horses and humans and welfare and everything else. But if we haven't got safety, we really haven't got anything, have we? I'm totally on your page. And it's this thing I've always questioned or for a long time questioned, can one teach feel? And I've definitely proven to the world with thousands of students and clients that we can teach feel. And so with it comes this 
this fact of do we walk into a pen? You know, and this is something I find interesting, Glennis, because when people leave a lot of the workshops and clinics, they will say the horse is the best teacher. And absolutely, undeniably, they are. But you pull the coach out and you perhaps don't have much teaching. And that's a big thing to consider if you pull the person out that's bringing the knowledge, the insights, the inspiration to the mix, and you won't know how to interpret what that horse is teaching. And so with giving a voice to the voiceless, like to the wild horses and teaching feel, in order to teach feel, there has to be a degree of structure, I believe, because otherwise you'll be fumbling. You know, you'd stand there with a wild horse going, okay, so what is it I do? Well, You've got to have a degree of a structure to say, go in there when they look you in the eye, acknowledge by dropping your eyes. And that's what is called structure. But that is also the safety, right? The very safety is how do you walk in without that horse jumping out the pen? How do you walk in without actually being attacked by the horse if they feel like they're penned in? And that's all about the safety. Yep, yep. And and I love that. I love the talk about the safety. I know that you've talked before in our chats about TLC or trust-based leadership and compassionate communication. How would you explain that a little bit more for someone who hasn't heard that term before? It's a big mouthful, I know, and everything that I do takes a little bit of time for me to Actually, I've got to butt in there because TLC often means tender, loving care, doesn't it? It does. It's the same same thing, yep. Kind of has that acronym. Yes. Going on. Um, But for me, it was about how do I put everything together for people to understand what system I'm talking about. Every clinician pretty much has a system and everybody will look at a way to move forward. And of course, I don't really want to reinvent the wheel or indeed coin something that doesn't need to be coined. So here's the point with that. The TLC came about because it is about the trust. It's about trust. And where does trust come in? We we have to have the personal trust towards that horse, and the horse has to trust us. This goes both ways. And leadership, for me, is earned and not given. You can't walk into a pen and just say, I'm the leader of this herd of two. It, it, it doesn't, and it need not work that way. It's about proving that you can lead the herd of two. And the compassionate communication means that Communication exists everywhere, but it could be forceful, harmful. It could be predatorial communication and indeed more of a dominance-based communication. And so for me, it was very important to put in there, what is compassionate communication? Well, that also means the fact that we're we're listening with our hearts. We're seeing with our eyes. We're hearing the non-spoken dialogue. And we're, we're discerning what it is that these horses are actually saying to us. So there's an energetic component, and there's also this component of realization of how they perceive us, what we are doing when we walk in the pen, like what are we focused in on, what's the first impression we give, are we walking in saying, what can we do for you today, or we have the understanding that something's going on for you today. And so for me, that was the compassionate communication. Yeah. So this system, you know, when would you implement it? Is it something we're going to use all the time? Yeah, great question, because I've already mentioned that we do some unique courses, and that includes the Wild Foal Gentling, and we've teamed up with two rescues out in Oregon this year to bring wild foal gentling, and that's for the tribal foals. So here in the United States, we have Native Americans, and they raise their own 
livestock, so to speak, and with it, they might cull where needed or where the government stays. And so you've got these folds that are destined to be homeless or slaughter-bound. So we deal with the wild folds, and that's a big deal for me to raise awareness and raise funds. But I'm categorizing that because people will understand that if we're looking at fold gentling, be that Premarin's nurse foal, tribal foal, show foals, Mustang foals, TLC comes into play. If we're looking at feral horses, Mustang, Brumbies, feral horses, horses that can't be caught, TLC comes into play. If we're looking at a relationship, building, connection, riding, it comes into play. Behavioral issues, behavior modification, all of it, it comes into play everywhere. So you wouldn't exempt it for a breed or an age because you can throw TLC in for the retired horse, for the geriatric horse, for the young horse, the yearling, you name it, TLC can come into play. So there's no breed, size, age exempt. But what it isn't, it isn't something to say, I'm going to do this every day. There may be horses out there that appreciate the head rub and the ear rub and the eye rub. But the truth is, if we go through a system every single day, it would be quite monotonous. It would be boring. It could even create a behavior challenge. And to ask a horse to go back and forth in a rocking horse motion or circle them around you is simply unnecessary. It really is boring or or you're putting your beliefs onto a horse and you're dominating them so for me the tlc if that horse is under saddle it is a cockpit check that's exactly what it is we check it with the horse to say i would love to ride today let's go through some of these questions if we're looking at a wild horse we're getting them comfortable with being handled and if we're looking at problem solving we're determining the history and how they behave in general. So not only is it a cockpit check, it's an evaluation, an assessment, communication, connection. It's discernment. There's so much that goes into it that I think we miss, Glenis, that people don't teach us this. They don't say connect with a horse prior to riding. They don't say check in with a horse. It's often getting on and that's when the accidents happen, you know, because that horse is a different horse potentially every day. Sometimes we start off, you know, start off and and ideally start off on a very quiet horse, a quiet, reliable horse. Ideally, everyone starts off on a quiet, reliable horse and then they get straight into riding. So you're absolutely right. Instead of being taught, well, we've really got to check this first. You know, it's almost like the next step, you know, beginner could do this before they get on and then the, the instructor's teaching them a little bit more about horse behaviour. Absolutely. It also brings them to life a little bit more instead of, it's so funny, I did an animal communication session today and the horse really said it best where he said, I cannot trust you until I trust myself. That was what he was conveying. And for me, there's an episode in itself of my goodness, of course, how can we trust another when we don't trust in ourselves, especially to take another on on our back? But when he was explaining one of his background pieces, because he he had spooked and the rider had come off, but he explained it to say he'd carried a lot of riders. He'd been at a ranch where he would take the dudes out. But for him, it was a matter. He knew the environment. He knew the, the area on the back of his hoof, so to speak. 
where to place his feet over rocks and sand and rivers and mountains, and he wouldn't understand the weather patterns. But he'd have a passenger. That's what it would be. And so where my client's asking, how do I connect with him? What will it take to connect? His response truly was the foundational, the fundamental years of his life, he carried people not to connect with them, but to keep them safe. So for him to change that into a true connection would take a number of years for him to figure it out. And that's exactly it with this safety system. This horse clearly knows I have a rider and my job is to place my feet correctly and take you on a scenic route. But to connect to the level to go, we trust one another, we bow down in a way to one another, one time you lead, one time I lead, depending on what we know, that takes some skill and that comes in time. That, that honestly, you can only determine through animal communication. There, there would be another way to get that down. But we can look at it to go, you know what, let's build some TLC in here. Let's get the connection from the ground up that you're looking at your rider, that you don't just think there's an individual sat on your back. But in fact, we are connected. And if you've never done that from the ground, their only piece is the cues from above. And they may not connect the same way that a horse will when you're on the ground first. Tell us about this intimacy, you know, the eyes, the ears, the mouth. What does that mean for us and for our horses, that intimacy? It's a big thing on many levels. I feel like the way I was taught was to to basically pat a horse on a neck and then put a bridle on, put the saddle on and start going. And it was all about technique of the end result of what we were seeking to achieve, so to speak. And it didn't matter where I rode in which country, Germany, England, you name it, across Europe, everybody had the same philosophy. And I feel like that for a long time was what was being taught. So to walk in, and this really comes from wild horses or untouched horses, you you cannot drive them. You couldn't force them, really. If you do, you take their soul. And that's been done by many a person, but you're taking a horse's soul and you're you're bullying your way through. So when you're truly looking at that connection, the first thing you do is say hello. You drop the eyes to say hello. And then perhaps the second thing that you're doing is really introducing yourself on their level to go, you know, hi, I'm Anna Twinney. I might be your messenger today or I might be your trainer today, but this is who I am in my authentic form. So with that, we're looking to greet, to say how would you wish to greet more often than not, they reach out with their nose and we do with the back of the hand. But then the TLC goes into the intimacy to go, would you like me to rub you between the eyes? How do you feel if I touch your ear? And when we look at the intimacy piece of rubbing the ears, not only is there a stress release at the top, there's a reflex point at the top of the ear. And so when you're massaging it, it can bring a horse out of stress and calm them down, generally speaking, and relax them and even support in colic situations. But you're looking at the history, because if they've been ear twitched or they've had an accident, an injury, and they're concerned about protecting that ear, they're not gonna let you touch it. So not only is this about the intimacy of we're connecting together on a physical level, but we're also determining how have you been handled and treated in the past? What's your concern on this ear? You know, is the right ear easier than the left? And is that because it's the offside and you've not been handled there? You're, you're truly looking at, at allowing them a voice, giving them a voice through giving back. And giving back can be the touch. 
and the the petting, the caressing. And, and instead of looking for something from them, like putting the bridle on, we're saying, let's connect. Let's get to know one another. Let me give back if you love this. I'll rub you here. And it begins, and, and you can switch this around. I was going to say it begins with the ear. But the truth is you could switch it around and you could begin to pet them on the forehead, the third eye. So that's a very intimate place. They can't see there. So you could begin there and you could cover the eye, you know, and underneath the eye is a ganglion of nerves. You're going to hear all my critters out here because we're in the summer in the south. So you've got all, all the, the beautiful noises in the background. But you could cover their eye and massage underneath the eye in little circular motions. And those little circular motions put together can cover the eye. And that, that there is a collection of nerves. It's also known as the bladder meridian. And so you're, you're moving, creating motion, creating energy by that bladder meridian, right at the beginning of the bladder meridian. And so that in itself is a very grounding action. And with that action, you've got the peace, the calming. Now, that meridian, the bladder meridian, is connected to the gut. So if a horse is in a colic situation, in a stressful situation, we can rub underneath the eye to bring them back, get them into a place of, of being able to hear you, being able to, to ultimately put their flight, fight, freeze response down and out of the way. So there's many intimacy exercises that can be supportive as a hello and a first impression. Yep. The head drops. What's the value in the head drops? How can we know what the meaning there is and what they represent for the horse and for us? You know, just tell us a little bit more about the head drops. You talked before about them, but if we can expand on the value of those head drops. Absolutely. So, so what you can see a lot at expos now and where people have perhaps started to train in natural horsemanship because it tends to be part of that phenomenon. And so you'll see people dropping the horse's head a lot. And it's all about get the head down, get the head down, get them to be with you, get them to be relaxed. But what I've noticed now that we've had a movement for over 20 years, I've noticed that those horses can get glazed eyes, that they're walking behind the person quite robotically or very compliant. And that's exactly where they've been told to be, behind with the head down. Here's the thing is you're taking the spirit out of the horse. And most people didn't go into horsemanship to take the spirit out of them. They went into horsemanship to find a relationship, to, to enjoy the sport, to unravel a puzzle. You know, whatever it might be, it wasn't necessary to take the horse's spirit. And so these head drops are huge to be mindful of. A horse lowers his head to eat. They eat when they're comfy, not when they're stressed. So they're going to eat, lick and chew, have the jaw motion when they're comfy. It's a vulnerable position to be in with the head low. Horses need the head up high to see in the distance. Their zone of awareness up to two, three, four miles even, depending on their location. Like in Australia, I was out watching the Brumbies for a week. We were camping out there watching them. And the Brumbies could see a mile and a half away and figure out our intention, whether or not they would run or stay because they've been chased on horseback. So here's the thing with it. Dropping the head, they're vulnerable. Dropping the head, they can no longer see off in the distance, only what's immediately in front of them. 
to be asking them to lower their head, not only are they coming off of pressure like you think, but you're taking away the flight, fight, and ultimately, potentially, the freeze. So you're taking away their form of defense. Asking the horse to drop his head is asking them to trust you. It's asking them to respect you and to hand over leadership. But we want that to be done in an amicable way, not in a stealing way. Not I'm stealing that head drop from you, but instead I'm asking you, could you lower your head? Could you trust me enough to soften your neck muscles? Could you give me back your head so that we're not fighting? You know, there will be horses that brace that neck in order to bolt, brace the neck to own their feet. So part of the head drop is owning the feet. So we're asking them to willingly lower the head and be vulnerable. So you can imagine when we do a head drop, we're looking for softness of the tissue. We're looking at a soft yield, a willing yield, an honest one. So many horses will drop their head and it will come bouncing back like a jack-in-the-box because it's not genuine. They've learned to drop a head and come off pressure, but they're not genuinely feeling the relaxation. So it's important that we watch how they lower their head, what their eye looks like, and to ensure that they're willingly wanting to stay soft. And, and you know, Glenn, that's where I think the methods go a little bit beyond because it's no longer an action of, yay, we've got a head drop, kudos to us. It's more about what's that horse telling you when he drops his head? What's he telling you when he doesn't drop his head? And how can we best support him if he can't drop his head at that moment in time? Because it tells you they're going to bolt, they're anxious, they're worried. And so we put the head drop in, not because we say we're leaders, but to say, could you be with me? Could you stay with me? Can you trust me enough to protect you at this moment in time? It's, it's a big deal. I think it's a big deal. I could talk about that probably for an hour for people truly get that value to realize, don't ask your horse to constantly drop his head, realize the importance behind it. And, you know, only use it when you need it. Don't give that up because it, you, you don't want them to be compliant. You want them to be genuine. And so don't use it until you need it. And to realize that's the base to go onto horseback. We want their heads to be soft and supple and peaceful and calm and relaxed and rhythmic when we're riding them. So this becomes part of taking it up into the saddle. What about the neck yield? Can we examine that a bit more? Absolutely. I've just done a ton of that. I took that to the healing horses class because it's important that when we're doing the energy healing, they bring their head to us and they're active participants. But also on all the wild horse gentling, it's always about bring the nose with you to watch the eye, to make sure that they are active participants. What's going on for them? They don't switch off and create a coping skill that they're glazed over, but they're actively stating, do this, don't do this. See, I wouldn't want their voice stifled. And if their voice is stifled, one, again, they become robotic and compliant. But two, they're not having the fun and joy with it, you know. And this this whole horsemanship is meant to be a fun and joy and that they're having fun. And so are we versus pushing back. So a lot of this neck yielding is about watching the eye, keeping the eye active and not staring in the eye, but watching them to see how they're feeling because the emotions in the eye and that's the emotional connection that we're gaining but also when we do the neck yield we're looking to see how they feel pain wise there's a high percentage it's around the 80 percent mark that most 
most misdemeanors, most misbehaving comes from pain-related aspects. So we want to know, how do you feel in your neck? Is there a pain in your neck? Can you softly bring your neck to me in a way? And that means we can look, are you more left-sided or right-sided? Do you have an old injury in there? Here's a little story for you. I was in Sweden and I'd done TLC on this horse. She was a Swedish sports horse that came to a clinic. And she couldn't bend her neck left. But I didn't think too much of it. I noticed it during TLC. And then to the right, real easy. So she wasn't resisting. She couldn't do it. But she was there for trailer loading. They would load her with a jacket over her head. They'd attach her and they would reel her in. So not a kind way to do it. Not a kind way to do it. Not an appropriate way to do it. So I was there to teach her to load. We always proceed the loading with TLC. When it came to loading her, and we were trying to go in a two-horse trailer, she would go off to the left, off to the left. And as soon as she went to the left, she'd spin, not with her neck, but her body, because her neck couldn't spin. And then she'd run, she'd bolt. And I remember at that moment in time, it was very hard to hold her, of course. And there was an audience there. And she was saying, no, I don't want to load. And I don't blame her. I wouldn't want to load if I'd been forced into a trailer either. But she's also saying she couldn't bend her neck. I looked up and I said to the guardian, no, can you tell me about this neck? The reason she's bolting is because there's pain in the neck when she turned left. Can you tell me what happened? And she said, the last time she got a vaccination, the vet was able to give it, but the needle remained in her vertebrae in her neck. Oh, Wow. So here, wow. well, exactly. So here, she's got a terrible name for non-loading. They talked badly about her. She'd got a reputation, and nobody had come up with the fact that she's got a damn needle stuck in her neck. And so the TLC was the prerequisite to everything to determine physically this horse cannot turn left. So we really need the left and right bend to determine the physical. Besides that, we've just talked about the trust. If you can get a beautiful soft neck bend, not only does it go up in the saddle for left and right, but you're taking the vision away from the offside or the near side. You're asking your horse to trust you. You're asking them to say soft. You're doing a degree of yoga or Pilates with them, that they're nice and supple. And, 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 and it becomes part of the one rain stop on the ground and in the saddle. It, it's a huge piece of it, Glennis, because with the wild ones, if you haven't got the neck yield and you take them out for a walk the first time, they're gonna bolt, they're gonna hit the end of the line and run into pressure. The neck won't bend and they're gonna go hard and fast and it's bloody dangerous, honestly. So if you can get these neck yields in and teach them when they're not under pressure to yield to the pressure, you've got a greater chance when they're under a degree of stress to be able to support them in bending their neck. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now. 
and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. Just go on a bit more about this one rain stop because... There's more to it than the one rain stop, isn't it? You know, we've got the disengaging of the hind leg. Tell us a bit more because I think some people get it a bit wrong. You know, it's, it's important to teach your beginner riders if they're going to get into a situation they need to stop to have the one rain stop. But just tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, so many aspects here because whoever's influencing whoever's feet is leading which is a big deal. You know, if you've ever been pushed by a horse, they're moving you backwards, they're influencing the feet. If you can't on the ground, if you can't do liberty, who's moving whose feet? So this is part of this one rein stop is to get the neck yield because if they're running away with you, they're leading that herd of two. If they are fucking anything like that, whoever's influencing whoever's feet is leading. But here's the thing too. I was in, it was, it was Denmark. I used to go, I went for about a dozen years and before COVID hit actually. And it was kind of cute. I teach the TLC and one of the largest behavior issues that came to the clinic would be the Icelandics. Perfect horses in my eyes, love the Icelandics. And one of the easiest breeds to be around, very versatile, et cetera, et cetera. Lovely as you get older because they're closer to the ground and also nice to sit with their gait. But one of the issues that jumps out with the Icelandic is the fact that they can bolt. And when they bolt, they're sturdy. Their neck is very sturdy. They're short, they're stout. Even if they're gated, they're sturdy. And so the lady came back to the clinic and she says, and we'd been working on this little bolting horse. And she said, you know, I, I was doing your one rein stop. I, I was doing the neck yield and he learned to canter with his nose on my knee. And I'm looking at her and I had to smile to go, oh, my goodness, that's only half of it. That's the front half. You got a great neck yield, which is great, but you forgot the hind half. And the hind half is the disengaging of the hind end, easily done on the ground. And so we asked the horse, if people can envision this, for the near side to the left side, if you're standing there, we asked them to disengage. That means bringing the left foot in front of the right foot, like a crossing over. And nobody can run when they cross their legs. You're taking away the flight, fight, and freeze. You're asking them to disengage so that you have no flight, fight, freeze. And so with that, it can be done when they're walking in a circle or standing still. You disengage the hind end. And you've got to train them to it because many will shuffle. They'll shuffle if they're frightened, worried, concerned, want to keep the leadership. Or they'll shuffle if the body language is a little bit off. So when we teach the disengaging of the hind end, we can take that onto horseback where we put our leg on and it's not a side pass, it's a disengaging the hind end. And you put the two pieces together, the neck yield with this disengaging, you have the one rein stop. Not only does your horse stay supple because they're bending through the whole body, you're also communicating, hopefully in the arena first, getting that down, and then you can take it out into open spaces. And it's a really neat thing to teach a horse because they can't buck or rear or bolt or bulk. Or they could strike because that's the front end only. 
but those are things that you're taking away from them. So you're you're regaining power in that sense, but it's not just about power. It's really about getting them out of the flight mode and into their thinking brain so they can be back with you. The combination is very strong on the ground and strong in the saddle. And it really is a must for any horse, not not just beginners. It's it's one of those things that I'll teach our colts, so colts starting, our youngsters, I'll teach that as one of the first 10 lessons to put it in place for safety. Okay, okay. Now, something else that you said, and this was sort of when you were talking about um, the whole warm-up of the horse, the, the check to make sure, you know, without getting them bored, but you talk something about a rocking horse motion. So I just want to ask you about that and what the importance of that is. Yes, it's a nice way to think about it because the rocking horse would be the forward and back motion and many clinicians teach it. It would not be uncommon for people to go, I've got that, I taught my horse to back up and that's exactly it. You're teaching them to back up lightly. I'm not a fan of the big clip hitting them in the face, not a fan of that. I think there's no gain with pain. But when you're teaching them to come off pressure and I use the Dooley halter for it, huge advocate of the Dooley halter. And it was started at Montes. It's his, it's his creation. It was done while I was there as the instructor there. And it's a really cool creation. And it's different to the rope halter because the rope halter can slide a little. It's not fitted. Although it fits almost every horse, no matter who you put it on, it's not always great for remedial or for ground driving or riding off of necessarily if you're seeking to release pressure where there's clarity behind it. Of course, you can jump on a horse bareback and put a rope halter on. Not an issue at all. When you've got your your communication down and you've got your connection down and you're happy, but when you're teaching them, <clears throat> the dually's nice. It's got a rope over the nose and it's got a little bit of an edge to it. And so the precision is within the release. So with that, you can now imagine, I'm not going to hit them with the with the clip on the face. But instead, we ask for a little head drop so they raise their back, they bring their head to the chest, we get a little head drop, and then we ask them to back up. And they're backing up into a place they cannot see, which automatically makes it trust building. You're backing them into the unknown. You're backing them with the head straight where there's a blind zone behind them. You're influencing the feet. You're getting the rhythm and the feel. You're releasing every footfall from the front there so they get reward and praise and reassurance and recognition for lifting those feet. And then equally, as much as we back them up, we're looking for the forward motion. It ends up being, you could call it push and pull, but you end up being coming forward and going back. And the lighter it becomes, they're going off of minor feel, minor touch, and indeed body language. Here's the thing. You don't simply want the body language because you've got to teach them the feel of the rope so they come off pressure. And you don't simply want the pressure because you want them to understand the body language and keep that in place. So it's a combination. Knowing that you are teaching them to come off pressure and getting a beautiful rocking horse motion back and forward to the point where they're anticipating how far and how fast do I need to go back or forward. And that can be done, that can be done in a way, Glennis, that it's it's a nice dance. And it's I've coined it the dance. We call it the dance. There's the three D 
dance is the nice softness so people don't have to feel that they hammer on the halter. I think I think the older I've gotten, the less hammering on the halter happens and a more softer approach has taken its place. Okay. And what about this creating the distance, the depth of creating the distance? Mm. It's probably the hardest part that people find on my courses because it can look more harsh than anything else. Picture this. Picture that everything up until now, ears, eyes, mouth, head drops, neck yields, disengaging, dance, and a few other things, has been done close, close up. And this is the first and the only thing done at a distance, hence I called it distance. And so at this point in time where the horses have learned to neck yield, to head drop, to disengage, all through pressure release and through the feel, now you're removing yourself. You're creating space. We have a 30-foot long line that we work with. So perhaps the space would be 15 feet. And you're having to create space to apply the pressure. The whole goal is that the horse jogs to you. Think of it that way so you know the outcome. So in order to get to that place, we remove ourselves. We create distance. We would ask the horse to stay there, sort of, but not insist. Create the distance so we tend to jog backwards so looking at the horse we jog backwards and then we apply the pressure to ask them to come forward pressure alone would create forward motion the quantity style of pressure will encourage a jog the thought the eyes down the feel of the line the intention will create the jog and so we're looking for the horses to come off of the feel of the pressure and to learn to know that their job is to walk or trot, depending on how it's asked. This for me is true feel, because with this, Glenis, you know that they could jog into a trailer. You know that they could jog if the farrier was waiting for you. You could pony a horse off of, off of another horse, a ride one, take another, once they can come off of pressure. There's so much we can do. Take them over obstacle courses, lead them around in nature once they understand how to come off pressure. And so the distance takes us out of the equation in relation to showing them close up. And it allows for them to discern it and figure it out themselves and come forward off the pressure. I'm hoping that I've created clarity behind that visual because it's hard to see, but it is on it is on DVD six. And uh, I'm thinking about this distance. It's really a form of leading. Tell us a little bit more about the direction and the form of leading. You're moving it along. You've created the distance. Now tell us about the lead. And you sort of talked a bit about that. So I just want to make sure we're both on the same. Um, you know, we're both talking in the same direction. <laughs> Perfect. That's exactly it. I feel like the dance creates the softness and the rocking horse and the understanding. There's, there's six options you see a horse can take when they feel a noseband getting tighter or the halter around the face. They can go up, down, left, right, forward and back. And ultimately, when we're teaching the leading, we're teaching them to come with us and follow the feel of the line. But they don't come naturally with that. You see any foal, any wild horse, uneducated horse will, when they feel the pressure, they lean into it. And that could be turning away, spinning away from you or going up and over. But they don't know what to do with it. It's not innate to them. And so by teaching them a little head drop, 
so they understand if the pressure's coming from direct path to drop the head. Teach them the neck yield. They know if it's coming left and right. Teach them the rocking horse. It's back and forward. Teach them the distance. They understand with the lightest of touch, they come forward, they jog. So put all of that in place and you have the leading down. So many people, so many people will say, my horse's halter broke. I had it the other week. In fact, there's a halter on a horse. Correct them to go, no, that horse is having a halter. Be that that they were recently gelded, recently had a halter on, they've been out left out in the field, they were started late with a halter. No matter what the circumstances are, they will say, my horse's halter broke when the halter's on. That doesn't make them, in our terminology, in our world, in our language, halter broke. Halter broke is a horse that will lead and stop and start and go left and right and want to come with you and kind of be kind and not pushy, be respectful, have manners, all of those things. That's a halter broke horse. And so you can't really just start leading and expect them to get it all. It's a lot to move your feet and then say, get back. You're not allowed that far forward or come forward. You shouldn't be that far back. It's a lot if they don't understand what to do with the pressure. So all the things that we've spoken about breaks it down for them to understand in bite-sized chunks. Finally, we put it together with the leading. Now, here's something for you, because this may or may not go with your philosophies, because as I grew up, we would lead horses um, shoulder to shoulder. And then here in the United States, a lot of the cowboys, it would be 10 feet behind you. And there will be so many ways. The thoroughbreds, they have they lead rope over the shoulder that people do, and they lead shoulder to shoulder. But what I found is that no matter if they're an amateur through to professional, that horse ends up leading if you go shoulder to shoulder. They're dragging people. They're deciding where to go. Or they're getting reprimanded for doing the wrong thing, although they're out in front. And so for me, when I connect... And I want to read that eye, and I want to discern the eye, and I want to walk together, we go eye to eye. So that ends up being their nose walking with us at our shoulder. And I found that's to be the direction because we're with them. We can turn right and left without having to correct their nose carriage. We've got a close connection already. We can ask them to slow down if they're too far out in front and dragging people or trying to eat the grass because... They haven't already done it. They haven't got their trot or canter stride in. And neither are they behind us where they could spook and jump on us. They're next to us. Now, if they were to spook, their nose is at our shoulder. They could spook right, not a problem, and left. They could either run in front slightly, placing us at the shoulder, or they would move us somewhat. But shoulder is the place to be, right, the safest place. So if that horse jumps forward, that's where we'd be placed. If the horse jumps forward when you're leading shoulder to shoulder, you're in the kick zone. So I see very little value to lead shoulder to shoulder and far greater value for communication, connection, collaboration to lead with their nose at our shoulder. Okay. You know, as far as the philosophy goes, I think I'm just open to learning. And then, you know, when I'm teaching, my students will ask a question, and then I can ask them questions, you know, to yeah. say what about this? What about that? And I think a good horseman can do a lot of things. I think the whole aim is to be 
a good horseman, a good horse person, you know, that they can read and watch and understand, yeah. I think that's a lot more important than having set rules. You know, you have set rules for your beginner. So you begin a rider yeah. or you begin a person, you say this is the way to do it because history has shown this is the safest way, but then as you move on a bit, you can be a little bit more, you know, whether it's creative or exploring or something, just to say, is there a better way? I think that's probably the best philosophy. It's perfect. And it's exactly like that. You know, there'll be times where the horse wants to walk behind you. So you go, you know what, you're safe as can be, stay there. And then there's times here at my farm where I will tell people, make that leading from pasture to pasture a connected leading. Because this is the only time they're going to see you all day because these aren't performance horses. So I want you to connect and watch them and be with them so that they see that we're not, we are neither robots just going from A to B and being the job's worth of, okay, got to get the job done. But instead we say, hello, we put the halter on gently, we might pet them and then go, okay, are you ready? Let's go together. And for the most part, we encourage that eye to eye to be able to see it so that they're not nose diving into grass and pulling people yes. everywhere. Yeah. yeah. You know? What about this single line yield? Tell us the secrets to that. See, that's a, that's a fun one. We break down the safety system in, in different parts. So when I'm teaching it, if it's a clinic, I'm looking at my audience, just like you stated, maybe we'll put in eight pieces of the safety system. When I'm teaching Reiki, energy healing for horses, I might look at it to say, let's do ears, eyes, because we want to be intimate. Let's get a head drop and a neck yield for relaxation. We don't necessarily need the disengaging and you don't need the dance. So you pick up and go, well, maybe you need the dance if the horse is moving forward and not standing still for energy. So you can literally pick and choose it. So quite different from the cockpit check for the fact that there you might say, I've got to make sure my horse is with me listening and so on and so forth. But for energy healing, slightly different. So when it comes to the single line yield, this isn't something you do a lot of. It's not even something you'd necessarily have to build into the repertoire, but once or twice. Definitely essential for cult starting. Really essential. So picture this. We have a single line. It could be a long line, 30 feet. It's better than a 14-foot rope. And we're standing on the near side. We put the single line over the nose like you would reins, over the ears, on the back, and then standing in the shoulder, you flick it like you are a fisherman. You're flicking it to the rump and all the way back to the rump so it sits on the hocks. We then step back and away, clear out of the kick zone, and we massage the line because they know how to come with it. They've done their neck yield and the disengaging and they can follow the feel and they turn towards us. This is the single line yield. What we're doing at that point in time is we are again assessing to go, how do you, and how do you feel about reins over your head? We desensitize to the line. We get them comfortable. With some of the Mustangs, that could take a month to get down. So we take it for granted if you're looking at a domestic horse to go, you know what, I could do that with a lead rope. Yeah, because you've handled your horse and they're a performance horse or they're, they've grown up with you. Of course you can and you should be able to. But there will be some horses, it could take a week, a month or longer to try and desensitize them to these lines. 
This is the one rain stop after all. The neck is yielding, the hind end's disengaging. It's terrific. It's teaching connection as they come back to your heart space. They're following the feel of the line to come and find you. It would be great for the beginning of ponying, great for ground driving because you've taught them left and right. And it's great for those who wish to bolt away where you've still got the halter on because you teach them to come back. So if they find it difficult to connect, it's a fantastic thing. Kickers, fantastic to teach them. Not necessarily the way I just told you, but a great way to overcome obstacles and, and create new possibilities. In other words, the single line yield allows you to discern what they know, gain the history, gain a connection, follow the feel of a line, and create supple horses. It's a really, really cool piece of horsemanship. What's this tail massaged? You know, you talk about the one rein stop, disengagement of the hind legs. The tail massaged anything to do with that? You know, it would probably be good to put that in before the single line yield so that you don't chuck a line by behind them and find out that they're going to buck and mm, mm. kick at it. So it's sort but of a fact, step towards it, the single line absolutely. yield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the other thing with this tail massage, it's really kind of a cool fun fact. Their tail is clamped down with trailer loading. They're less likely to load. So it's a sign of huge stress. But if they've got a, if their tail's slightly up, they're more likely to load. So it's a way for you with trailer loading to be able to connect, massage, and bring them out of their funk or to get a read on if they're going to load, right? If that tail's clamped down, chances are they're not going to load. So you can get a read on a horse that way. Multiple usages. It tells you how they feel emotionally when the tail's clamped. It supports them and you for medical reasons. Everybody needs to be able to utilize a thermometer for the vet to give them the, the vital signs. And this is part of massaging back there to get them comfortable with a the thermometer. So be that in training that we're looking to put lines behind them, be it in medical that we're looking to get the temp for the, the vet, or be it that we're looking to get a read on a horse, massage them, give them, give them something that they appreciate. Um, so many reasons to do that tail massage. And it's the little S-bend right at the top when you touch it. It's the little S-bend where you can put the fingers in and massage not just on the horse's butt, but underneath the tail as well. And it's re really lovely to see how many. And you guys know that, you know, when a horse backs up and they want their butt scratched. There's the beginning of it too. But there's a great piece that I don't necessarily endorse them backing up into you because they get in trouble. But if you're standing next to them, parallel next to them, to massage that tail, it's a really neat thing to be able to integrate into your horsemanship and be supportive of the horse. So, yeah, you'd put that in before you would do your single line yield. Yep, yep. And something about to circle or not to circle, that's the question. You know, I've, I've heard you say that. So what's the answer? Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've thrown it in a deep one. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you heard me sigh on that for the mm, fact mm. that um, probably a good 18 years I didn't bring it into the methods. And I'm just not an advocate of seeing these horses being circled in order to load, circled. Oh, okay, yes, yes, and turn them away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
circle because we can no longer circle. Circle to the warm them up. Circle. You know, there's so many. It's not lunging. It truly is on a 10, 12-foot rope where it's part of natural horsemanship to circle a horse. And it's keep the feet moving, influence the feet, gain the leadership, put them to work, work versus rest, discomfort versus comfort. We go on. And so I would watch it. And so I'm just not doing that. And I am not fond of it. I don't see the value in it. I think it's dominance-based. But what would happen is a number of students would come in from other clinicians. And this isn't about, like you said, this isn't about my way is the highway. It's about whatever works, works. We won't change it. If you want a hand feed and it works, great. Go for it. If it doesn't work for a thousand others, we're going to teach don't do it. And so, you know, the novice is better off figuring out don't hand feed and then like I said if the horse is well behaved do but the same with circling of circling when you're in the kick zone is bloody dangerous circling to go over obstacles when the horse says no they're going to jump out towards you circling to go into the trailer when the horse says no you're right under those feet when they rear you're in the kick zone if they kick you're going to be body slammed with the shoulder so I would watch all of these accidents happen not on my clinics and I'd watch these horses circle, getting pissed with their ears back and anxious and upset and go, I'm not doing this. But then they started to come on clinics, people. And I thought, you know what? I need to teach them why to do it. And it's my five WHs. You know, when do we circle? Why do we circle? What are we looking to achieve when we're circling? And it was about teaching people to think about it. Instead of doing what you've been told, question it understand it, really figure out why it's good or bad for the horse. And so I built it in to teach it. And we would bring in body language instead of a whip to just say, move forward and you're going to feel the discomfort until you do. We'd bring in the body language to teach it. But here's the important piece. For example, going over obstacles, I feel it's more important to teach them to go over them first and then drive them over later. It's way safer to teach to go over than drive. It's also safer in many ways to teach them to load and then teach them to drive in and load. So self-loading. So discovering all of that to keep horses safe, people safe, horses less misunderstood was to say, let's do this circling. Because you've got to be able to go through a gate and send your horse through, perhaps. Or there's 10 horses one side and you just want to send your horse through safely. You've got to know how to send your horse to the end of the line and potentially circle. What if the horse is too much and they're rearing? Perhaps circling's the answer. What if they're going to run around anyway? Circling's the answer so that you can get the one rein stop in. There's many times to do it, and I've listed a number of them. There's many times to do it correctly and not to wait until you're in a pickle. And so for me, circling for work versus rest, discomfort versus comfort, to load in the trailer, obstacle course, etc. just because you want to warm a horse up, not, let me clarify, warm a horse up in a moment, not necessary. You're actually going to get the horse fit if you constantly circle them. So it's not going to resolve your problem. It's going to become a habit that you have to circle them first instead of getting them under control. But where is it valuable? It's valuable if the novice can't hold the horse. It's valuable if I can't, honestly. I came back from working Mustangs 
And if I've, I've got to start here and you know what, if I can't hold him because I'm not strong enough, I'm going to circle him a little bit. So this isn't about just the novice. The novice might need to allow the horse to go around them in a five meter circle. The horse that's very strong might need to go around in a circle. If they have been in a stall all along, they might need to go around in a circle. If they're trying to get back to their friend, you could ask them to go in a circle. So the circling is a huge part of teaching a horse manners, what to do when you're out of control, what to do when you you can't hold them, right? All of these things is to teach in a controlled manner how to circle. And then by all means, we can take them over obstacles. We can ask them to self-load and it can be done in a very amicable way instead of utilizing the very nature of the horse against them. And I don't want to use the nature of the horse against them, like the backing up, Glennis. I don't want to just go back up for for half an arena length and working your hind end that can't be worked because you've been disobeying me. I'm not into that. It's this thing of, of get them out of your space so that you're safe. Ask them to back up so that they're more grounded. Get their focus back on you through backing up, absolutely. Get a fluidity in backing up because you've got to back up in nature when you're riding. All of those things are fantastic, but not using the nature of the horse against them. And that's the same with the circling. Let's not use it against them to say, for my purposes, I need you to be connected by running for 15 minutes in a tiny circle. It's going to cause them to lean in if it's not done correctly. And it's going to cause their nose to be out if it's not done correctly. So it has to be a tad of a loose line eventually. And it's it's funny. I tell you what, I posted one where I was teaching it and it didn't look happy and it didn't look fun. Um, the, the horse would bolt a little, hit the end, come around because they don't come finished. You know, people seem to think they come finished knowing these. They don't. And I tell you, I got so critiqued and they're going, well, look at this person's body language, meaning the student and look at that. And the horse stopped here. And, and if only you picked up a whip. My response was it wasn't about the whip. It was about people learning body language, about keeping eye contact, getting the correct position, bringing up their energy, asking a horse to move forward through communication and not through at all. So a lot of this is about how do you do it when you don't have the tool? How do you do it to bridge the gap between their language and ours? So many aspects to this circling for people to realize Don't just tick the box and say, okay, I've done my 12-step safety system every day where you're boring the horse or so that I know I can ride. Pick and choose the pieces you need. Just take the ones where the head is high carriage or you've got a high head carriage, lower the head carriage. Pick and choose the exact ones that you feel connected and you feel safe, but don't run through them all every single time. Yep. We're very much on the same page, Anna, with our training. You don't just do it for the sake of doing it. You do it, you watch the horse, you think about the situation. There's so much more than just a step-by-step, this is how you ride a horse or this is how you train a horse. Every horse is different. Every person's different. Every day is different. Every situation is different. And we've just got to be able to train through that to make sure that we're looking at everything for the situation at hand. And you still have your systems. You still say you need this before this and this is what needs to happen, but you've got to be a bit able to be flexible there to um, to go on. Now, before I finish, 
Is there anything you'd like to say just in closing, you know, just to sort of finish off? And, and I'd like also to talk about your contact details, but in closing, um, anything else you need to say, just about safety around horses, really? Well, I'd love to say a few things, actually. I've been teaching the horsemanship for around 22 years. I've probably taught online, offline a thousand a year, but in person, maybe three to 500 people a year. So you're, you're looking at a ton, thousands of people. And the safety record is unmatched, I reckon, unmatched. And so we've got, be that God shining upon us, be it a little bit of destiny and luck infused in the recipe, and be it that we've got a pretty damn good safety system. And so people can lose their confidence. They can lose their dreams. Horses can lose their lives through silly mistakes, even pathetic mistakes, a lack of thought. So the safety of looking of what can happen and preparing for that, but expecting the best is always really important. And it's, it's, it's hard on times. It's hard. And we've got to remember, you know, remember to look around. Remember that they have a voice and they do it silently through their actions. Remember that they have to learn in a stress-free environment before you put the stress on them like the shows. Don't take this to the shows, the safety system, and do it there. Do it at home where they're not under any stress so they understand what you're asking from them. There's so many layers to it. I'll tell you what, it's ex this has expanded, Glennis, over the years. I started probably with three things. It sounds so mine now. And then it would have gone up to eight and then 12. And it just keeps on expanding to say, this is what horses need to know. This is what the people need to know. And then I know they're going to be safe. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's important. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you're really resonating with Anna, then Go to her website, reachouttohorses.com, and you can search for contact details there and contact her through there. Is that the best way, Anna, or if you've got a phone number they can call you on? What's the you best know, way to contact it, you? It is. Yeah. Reach Out Horses has been established for a long time. We've got the Facebook page as well, and it's Anna Twinney, Natural Horsemanship. So it can be a little confusing that you've got the two there. But combined, we have the YouTube channel, over, I think, 300 videos there so they could even google it you know on the on the reach out to horses youtube channel and put it in the search sorry and they if they put the tlc in there or they put the three d's in there whatever they put under the reach out to horses they can find it and it's instantaneous so they can pick and choose perfect those contact details also will be if you go to horsechats.com and search for anna or search for twinny then um You'll find all of Anna's chats come up and the contact details will be on those pages as well. So you'll be able to reach out and contact Anna. <laughs> I love it. And it, I think we've been pretty comprehensive today. So whatever people didn't pick up through the lecture and they need a visual, they will find that. And then it will make more and more sense and you can listen to it as often as you want to and see it as Perfect. well. Anna, thanks very much again for coming on. Look forward to catching up with you again soon. And um, thanks very much for coming on. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate and subscribe.
If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below 